You're listening to Sunnyside Up, a B2B podcast that brings together real-world insights to help go-to-market professionals evolve and stay up-to-date on the latest trends. Join us as we bring you the best practices and proven techniques from industry experts and practitioners. Today's episode is made possible by Demandbase. Demandbase is transforming the way B2B companies go to market by enabling customers to embrace modern digital sales and marketing with a complete end-to-end suite of products. Thanks for listening. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Sunny Side Up. I'm your host, Asher Matthew, and I'm excited because like, this is the first podcast episode of the year. Well, that's one reason for excitement. The other reason for excitement is we have Indrapal Bandari on the show with us. And he's going to help us talk to us about B2B data strategy and insights for go-to-market teams. So, Indrapal, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Ashra. Happy to be here. Super. Well, I think you and I connected somewhere around six weeks ago, and then we said, hey, this, what we are going to talk about is so important. We should try to see if we can tee this up at the beginning of the year. So I'm excited, but let's start with sharing with our audience, which is executives around the world, by the way, a little bit about who you are and how you got to where you are, please. Sure, sure. So I'm Indrapal Bhandari. I serve as the Global Chief Data Officer at IBM. I've been doing that job for about six years now. Uh, the way I got here was I, I'm a Carnegie Mellon PhD in electrical and computer engineering. After that, I went to work for IBM Research. So that was my first stint at IBM. And I did that for about seven years and got pulled into this area of data mining. I ended up doing a computer program that was used by every team in the National Basketball Association, believe it or not, to plot strategies for playoff games and things like that. And that uh, kind of hooked me into the whole world of data mining at that point in time. I left and I started my own data mining company that I ran for about 10 years. Then I came onto the scene as a chief data officer for a healthcare company. That was in 2006. That time there were only four, four of us, you know, whether you call us chief data officers, chief analytics officers, chief digital transformation officers, whatever. There were only four four such people doing that role at that time. The profession took off. And so I was fortunate to be there where I was. And uh, then I began to be called by different organizations to set up the capability for them, the chief data office. So I ended up doing that four times. IBM is my fourth and by far the most complicated assignment. Yep. So it, you know, I was just fortunate to be where I was. And uh, in a way though, it has allowed me to develop and grow with the craft. Yeah. So done this multiple times. I think of the original four people, I'm the only one standing now doing <laughs> the same job. So I don't know if that's good or bad, but like I said, it has allowed me to grow with the craft. Well, that's that's great. And and for the audience, you know, the the level of uh, experience Indrapal has, he was actually named the U.S. Chief Data Officer of the Year by CDO Club in the past. And so, and you're frequently featured as an industry expert on the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, U.S. News. CNN and Fox. So I'm just super gracious that you actually spent some time with us to help other executives around the world who are trying to understand how do they become senior executives about this role and this capability and and how do they think about helping their teams understand the value of data to like help fuel their go-to-market engines. So with that, let's start a little bit about what is the chief data officer role and why is it so critical for businesses to now think about this role? 
Yeah, no, that's an you know, excellent question. I mean, in some sense, people have been doing the data role for a long time, pretty much as long as computers have existed. But in the more recent past, I'd say from 2002 on, and then increasingly so, it's become a C-suite role in the sense that the senior executives of the companies, they've become aware of the importance of data. And so the skill sets that go now with the, with the chief data officer role are also the board level skill sets. So you have to be able to interact and sit at the board level uh, seats and uh, contribute to that conversation, right? So those were the things that were missing previously when somebody was working in one of the back rooms, doing all the data management, perhaps doing a really good job, but really had no exposure to the C-suite. So they were more like taking some orders and then executing on them, making sure the data was fit for purpose. Now, as part of the C-suite role, you actually have the opportunity to work in collaboration with the other senior executives and help steer the business. And that's the biggest difference with uh, where things were before versus where they are now. Why has that happened? You know, why is it so important? Why is it so critical? If you just think about the trends, what is going on, like you can just pick up any of the major trends. You, know? you can pick up like digital transformation, right? So the pandemic really accelerated that, but it was there even before that. And digital transformation is all about essentially making sure that there's the customers have a digital experience, employees have a digital experience, right? So in a sense, whether you are, you're not so much replacing the face-to-face, but you are expanding your reach and you're allowing people to be connected with you and uh, are able to you know, get the benefit of the services you offer in a digital way. Data is crucial to that. If your data is not good, then you're not going to be able to do a good job on that. For instance, you know, if you don't have good information about your clients and how to connect to them electronically, you're obviously not going to reach them. So digital transformation is one major driver. Then next you take you know, artificial intelligence, AI, which is becoming a critical, critical competitive capability that enterprises must have. And people are recognizing that. Well, the starting point for AI is data because these systems have to be trained on data. And if that data is no good, you know, it's that garbage in, garbage out issue, right? That comes up. So again, you're back to data. Next, then you think of the threats around, say, cybersecurity, right? Botnets, all that kind of stuff that people go after, both state actors, individual actors that are trying to get to the crown jewels of an enterprise and personal data. Again, it's all about data, right? You have to protect it. You have to make sure that the access is controlled, et cetera, et cetera. When you look at all these major trends, at the center of them all is data. And that's why the C-suite is so interested in making sure that data is being not just managed and protected, but also monetized. Super. I love how you broke this down because of the three major trends, data, digital transformation, AI, and cybersecurity, most people just talk about digital transformation because it's so broad and it's so vague. And I moved to this country in 2001, but when I was moving here, people were just starting to talk about AI. And then you had this peak of AI and this like trough of AI that nobody take, cared about AI. And up until like the last three, four years, people are back on like, hey, we have the algorithms that are sophisticated enough. And we also have the ability to pull the right amounts of data from our disparate system so like we can feed it to it, right? And so that is, is super, super awesome. And I did not think of the, the whole cybersecurity angle, but it's super interesting to like think about like all the different players 
that can harm your business. So, because it's not just about growing your business, also protecting it as the business becomes bigger. Yeah, there was one comment again, if I may make, you know, yep. because your question on the CDO job. Yep. I like to think of that as having three dimensions, and different enterprises will, you know, give different weightage to the dimensions, but the dimensions are always the same. They're about growing your top line, expanding your bottom line, and reducing your risk. Yep. Right. So that's kind of why that hits the cybersecurity angle. It hits the yep. monetization yep. angle. It hits the efficiency angle. Yep. And different times I've done the job, there have been different focus, but you know, it's always those three dimensions. So the executive going into this job, they need to be conversant of about all three dimensions and able to understand that their job, in fact, year to year might change along those three dimensions. And is a lot of your job or maybe some part of your job just educating other people across the organization on just how to be comfortable with data. And I, I say that because when I joined Demand Matrix, which is the company that was acquired by Demandbase, I actually had to spend a month and a half just unthinking how I used to think about data by sitting with a data scientist. And it was not clear cut. And I, I would say that those 90 days were pretty difficult for me mentally. Yeah, no. So, you know, there's the data literacy aspect of it where people just don't understand or, you know, these, these, these are confusing, uh, you know, data has what's known as confounding variables. So when you're looking at some trend, et cetera, unless you're really an expert, it's hard to derive a proper judgment as to what's going on. So it is confusing. So data literacy, I think is, you know, a key part of what we have to do in every organization with our clients and customers. Also, I would submit the public at large, right? I mean, this is something by now, data is so crucial to everybody's lives that data literacy efforts, they just have to be picked up. You know, Benjamin Franklin, when, when he was around, he kind of had this big push into making sure that people had libraries. Yep, yep. Knowledge was disseminated across the country because he felt that that was essential for democracy. I think data literacy is on par with that. We kind of need people to have that understanding. And when we talk about data, again, this podcast is very focused on go-to-market professionals. So it's like, that's just one part of the data that an organization generates, right? Like each one of the engines, the, the product engine, which has product and engineering teams or the company engine, which has finance, uh, legal and HR primarily in it. Like all of these engines are generating tons and tons of data that at some level all connect with each other to again, to the framework that you shared earlier on to either expand the, uh, grow the top line or increase efficiency or just reduce risk. And so I would love to understand how you've structured your team. Now, I know there's probably like hundreds of people in your team, but like, what are the lanes that you've structured your team in? Yeah, no, so just uh, I'll back up a little bit so you get the context, because yep. like I said, the, you know, these jobs, they do vary sufficiently along those three dimensions. And depending on where you're landing, you will structure the team differently. So I'll give a little bit of context. What ended up being my job at IBM or the current job that I do, it had to do with essentially making IBM itself into an AI enterprise, mainly because when I joined, it was quite clear that from a business strategy standpoint, that I mean, how the company was planning to make money, you know, they, obviously there were various ways they were making money before mainframes and middleware, software, all that stuff. But you talk to the same senior executives, everybody said, we're going to make money through cloud and AI. That was basically, you know, the company that it was going to be. Those were going to be the services, the products, et cetera. And so it became quite clear to me that there was a fuzziness around this because 
AI was understood in a in a consumer context, but in an enterprise context, people didn't really understand what it meant. So, long story short, my data strategy, which was kind of dovetailed into the business strategy, was to make IBM itself into an AI enterprise, mainly because our clients look a lot like us, yep. and then use that as a showcase for our clients and customers. So that became the data strategy that we were going to follow. So then the organization, right, which obviously is then going to implement that strategy, reflects that, it reflects what we were about to do. So I have a technology arm as part of my organization that essentially focuses on building the central data and AI platform for the company, for the enterprise. Now, remember I, I said central, not centralized. It's actually yep. hybrid cloud distributed across the globe, yep. etc. But the resources are central, the policies are central, the methodologies that we use, those, like, those get centralized. So there's one technology team that essentially builds, runs, maintains that platform. There's a part of that team that I broke out to have that as a direct report to me as well. And that was the team that focused on uh, deep learning because it's such an esoteric part of artificial intelligence. There are not that many people who kind of understand really how to practice it. There are lots of people writing, you know, doing excellent research and writing papers, but in terms of actually applying it, it's difficult. And so, so that's another technology team that's part of that overall platform, but that also reports to me directly in addition to the people who actually create and run the platform. And I have a data governance organization. And these folks, they're responsible for essentially making sure that the data that we have is all fit for purpose. Purpose being, you know, making IBM into an AI enterprise and then using it as a showcase for clients and customers. And this team also is responsible for standardizing data that we really feel ought to be standardized. So what do we mean by standardization? We mean everybody talks about that data the same way, they use the data the same way, they interpret it the same way. There's really no give in terms of any flexibility for instance, you know, when we talk about a client, we want all the business units to be talking about the client in the same way so that we can eventually measure what the outcomes are with regard to that client. You know, so on the other hand, if there is a specific metric that a particular business unit, let's say storage unit or a marketing unit that they actually just need and that's only applicable to them, we let them have whatever flexibility they want in terms of defining it and so forth. So the governance unit makes sure that the data is essentially fit for purpose, the stewards are in place, that they're working across the board with everybody to do that. And then I have another unit which kind of manages all our master data. That's the data about our clients, about our offerings, about our workforce, and about our financial data. They're also involved in that. There are other teams involved as well in some of these, but you know, OVAS is kind of very central in terms of making sure that the data gets accessed. This was also part of the legacy teams. So a lot of the digital transformation that we went through had to do with taking those systems and then making sure that they were leveraging the new platforms that we set up with AI and so forth. So you know, it allowed us to actually change the culture from within, which was a critical move that I made. Coming in, that wasn't part of my organization. I actually asked for it as we moved forward because I realized that this culture aspect, the culture change aspect, you know, a lot of people will miss the fact that a CDO is a change agent and change is all about changing culture. So if you're able to change from within and then use that as an example for others, it makes it much easier for everybody to understand what you're talking about. So 
this became one of the things that I asked for and received. So that's another major part. And then there's one, the adoption unit. This is the unit that I think is kind of the fully empowered unit. They can, they're responsible for making sure that our central data and AI platform is adopted across the company. So, and they are fully empowered in the sense that if they find a like-minded team in a business function, like let's say accounts receivable, you know, they can go off and start working with that team to infuse AI into their processes and they don't need to come back for permission. So they're fully empowered, funded, they can just run with it. And I'll give you one stat. I mean, we in the after two, three years, we were up to like 100,000 active users on that central platform. Of that, maybe 15% came from a top-down recommendation, you know, from our senior executives saying, go do this, do this. But the rest, 85%, actually came from this bottom-up movement, largely responsibility of this team to drive. And uh, so that was another key aspect of it. And then the final piece of the puzzle, because we are a large global organization with many sizable business units that could be, you know, pretty much are of the size of companies of their own right. We have this business unit data officer network that I chair. And so we meet monthly and we kind of make sure that essentially things are, the standards are being observed, that we're responsive to whatever the needs are for as the business units are, you know, seeing what they're seeing when they go out to market. And it just allows us to leverage the work that we're doing across the entire company and just make it very efficient. It also allows us to respond very quickly when we have new regulations that break out, like European Union, GDPR, those kinds of things where you have to respond as a company. So having that group in place is also very helpful to do that. So that's the way the organization structured. And then did I hear correctly that that you actually had to create a platform? And I'm assuming you built it because, you know, IBM has like a huge consulting arm. So you built this thing from scratch and designed for IBM. And then there were some learning. So there's kind of a a software development lifecycle running as well. Oh, yes, yes. Yeah. No. So, you know, so we have major products in this area. Right. So, for instance, we've got a platform called Cloud Pack for Data. And that's essentially it brings you the underpinnings, the foundation that you need to work your data across the enterprise as well as to start using AI. Well, we are client zero for that. Yep. You know, so we, we work with the product teams because we're taking that platform, we're applying it, we're trying to solve you know, actual use cases across the enterprise so that our business processes become more efficient. And so in that process, we find a lot of gaps that, that are in the product that, you know, we kind of replace that. We reach out to ecosystem partners that we can work with, that we think, okay, this is going to make a lot of sense to work with them. So yeah, there's a whole product life cycle that goes with that. But it's also making use of our, you know, eating our own cooking. Yes, yes, yes. So this is super interesting, right? Because I just want to connect the dots with the people that started this conversation with us. So the business basically said, we are going to move it to cloud and AI. Then they brought you in, they gave you these resources, and then it took some time for you to consolidate these resources so that you could create a incubation and a adoption unit that if you take what you've just shared and bucket them, right, that's how, how they, they seem. And then there was a capability that was created inside of IBM. And then that capability was commercialized for companies 
who were interested. Super interesting process. I mean, at a macro level, it feels like a startup, but like this is really done at a much, much, much larger level. And I say that point because I'm sure that type of an effort requires patience. And as you rightly said, like if this is a change agent job and the, the change, the culture is imperative, then you for sure need time with this. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right in many ways when you say startup because, and that's been true of each job that I came into as a chief data officer. I kind of started with either zero people or very small number of people. And then then the team grew, right? So in a sense, it is kind of an an entrepreneur, if you will, role. But, But where it gets different from a startup is because you are part of this very large company. And your role is to make sure that those businesses move forward along one of those three dimensions or, or you know, some mix of those three dimensions that I mentioned. That's where the change agent aspect of it comes in. Because the startup, you can build the culture. You can build the culture within your organization, right? I've done that in the past. And that's the biggest difference. Here, you'll be given a lot of pieces to begin with that are legacy. You can bring in some people, but you still, you have to create a culture within your organization, but then also make sure that that projects out to the other units. So you're really, you know, the culture aspect of the job is probably one of the harder aspects of the job to make sure that that, you know, that you are carrying forward that change. And if it's the softer skills that come into play in that are very, very important, especially in in a large company. And and I'm glad you have an adoption unit because I've had these conversations with other very senior data folks, right? And the, the enablement of this is always left to somebody else. And I feel like that's such a critical mistake because even in like, let's say demand base, right? Like we're trying to do amazing things with like new messaging and new this and new that. And, and then the enablement is always centralized with somebody else, but there's this SWAT team of sorts that's needed to go in and actually show people. And I know it sounds very tactical or very like basic, but people that are not believers in data, Somebody needs to sit with them and actually show them how this thing works. So I'm glad that the structure that you put in place where you empowered a team to just go do stuff, right? Just don't stop is super duper interesting. And I guess, was that a result of something or that was just your intuition and said, I got to have this and we have to put this in play? Yeah, yeah. No, so, you know, I mean, look, there were many, many mistakes I made over those over the six years I've been here. It didn't, it didn't start out this way. It started out with a completely different vision because, you know, the company had a different vision. They kind of felt this is going to be a team of maybe 30, 40 people who yep. are bringing in data and then shooting insights to the rest of the organization. That wasn't what it ended up being at all because it ended up being about infusing AI into all our key business processes. And that was, you know, very different. It's not about shooting insights. It's actually about making sure that artificial intelligence is incorporated in the work that we are doing across the company. And so the organization ended up being looking very different, right? So and there were adjustments that I made. I gave the example of that legacy master data unit that I brought in that was later. The adoption unit also came about as a recognition that for the platform to be adopted, we actually needed to empower people. And if you think about it, right, if you have a data-driven culture, if you're trying to get to a data-driven culture and you don't empower people, that is, in a sense, you know, it's, it's just it's an oxymoron. Because if it's a data-driven culture, the people should be looking at the data and acting. Yep. Yep. They shouldn't be coming back for permission, right? So you do have to empower people. And there were some subtleties there, too. 
So for instance, in the technology group, I brought in quite a lot of new leadership from the outside. In the adoption unit, you know, I mainly have the leader, for instance, is somebody who's a highly regarded IBM executive, been with IBM for a very long time, understands the culture, et cetera, speaks the language, has worked in all these different processes. So it's a very different flavor for the unit than some of the other units, but it's a key aspect of why we were able to pull off what we had to do. I also think that, you know, to your earlier point, if you just throw it over the fence and say, okay, here, I've done my stuff, you do it. The eventual outcome is not going to be attained or is unlikely to be attained because the accountability now is very diffuse. You don't know who is accountable for achieving the outcome. So if you're essentially making sure that the adoption is also a key part of the mission of whichever unit is doing the implementation, then you've got, you know, you obviously have joint accountability, but it's very clear who's on the hook to do what. And so I think that's the other aspect of this that just became clear to us as we went forward and we created that unit. Very interesting. All right. I want to shift gears just to a couple of other points. One is this notion of uh, predictive analytics. And I feel like every 18 months or so, this thing comes up and then goes down, comes up, goes down. A whole bunch of companies get funded. They try some new things. Given, depending on where they're at, they, if they're smart entrepreneurs running, they just pivot to something else or they just die, right? Like, so where are we in, like, let's start like globally, like thinking about predictive analytics? Like how should people think about predictive analytics in today's day and age? Yeah, so yeah, I'm glad you said today's day and age because it's actually been there since, you know, when I, from my first stint with IBM, that was two decades ago, you know, it was predictive analytics. So predictive analytics is all about it's advanced analytics to predict outcomes, right? Certain outcomes that you're after, like, you know, what's my revenue going to be, you know? What's going to be my cycle time? So if you're able to look at, well, you have something that helps you take in the input of what your current state is and then predicts what it's going to be, you can make some adjustments. You can then, you know, kind of on the fly, make adjustments to try to get to where you need to be and to optimize that path and so on. So it's very powerful, obviously, as a concept. It's been around for a very long time because people have had capabilities to do prediction. Now, what's been happening, though, is those capabilities are becoming more and more and more powerful. And an example being, you know, artificial intelligence, like you said, I mean, now it's back at the forefront because there are some very, very powerful techniques that allow you to do prediction in ways that are, are, you know, you just didn't have before. So two decades ago, we didn't have that, right? We were primarily using statistical approaches, decision trees, some variants of that. Then they went on, okay, now we got some support vector machines. Now you've got deep learning, artificial intelligence, reinforcement learning, all kinds of very sophisticated techniques that people use to make these predictions. So in today's day and age, that's why I think thinking about AI is probably the right way to think about predictive analytics, because that's really what's going to drive it. Now, some of the things that we know about AI, because you know, IBM, we've been at the AI game for a very long time. We did the Deep Blue program that beat the chess champion. That was like in the 1990s. Then in 2011, we did the AI program that beat the Jeopardy champion. And so we've been at it for a very long time. There's a fundamental difference, I think, that we've kind of understood, which we didn't really understand that well in the past. You've got the algorithms that underlie AI, and that works when you're in a consumer context. 
you know, so you, you've got essentially a lot of like these recommendation engines and so forth, providing recommendations to consumers, et cetera. In an enterprise context, there are other things that come into play, which we've never really appreciated for quite a long time. I think it's more recent that we've begun to understand as we are starting to apply this to enterprises. So to answer part of your question, the enterprise predictive analytics with AI, that is just beginning. We're just at the, you know, the, the infancy of that is just starting. And what we've kind of learned is there's a lot more than the algorithms that have to go into that. There are notions around essentially trust, eliminating bias and so forth that become critical with these AI systems that do predictions that then people act on, you know, to do something. So for instance, if you're the senior executive in a business and you're using an AI program to learn from your data and infuse that into your business process, the AI program is actually picking up your IP. And if you don't trust the vendor, if you think they'll disintermediate you, you would never use them. Yep. So trust becomes huge, right? The transparency becomes huge. If you're using AI and you're using it on personal data, let's say to kind of make hiring decisions, you have to make sure that it is devoid of any bias yep. because otherwise that's going to all blow up in your face. Similarly, if you're using it for sensitive data, yep. privacy, all that stuff has to be paramount. So. These other aspects that play around the AI algorithm, in my mind, are the competitive aspects of where this AI war will be you know, lost or won with regard to the enterprise. So that's just beginning, I think. So when we think in terms of predictive analytics today in the context of AI, we have to think about all these other parameters. And whoever is coming forward with a the product, they will have to address those. You know, so they're on it for the long term. Yeah. I also feel that this world that we're about to enter is is this decision to accept the use of data is also a very personal decision. I'll give you a very personal example, right? And if you ask me like five years ago, this would not be true, right? But when my phone tells me that it's time to go pick up my daughter, now it feels really good. But the data person is thinking, who else could get this data? And now I'm scared, right? And so this, this is why I always say like, like, like in a lot of conversations, like these data decisions are very, very personal. And so you have to really be okay with actually relinquishing control because you're not going to have any control once the data leaves you, right? And so as an organization, you just need to be okay with the types of data that you will relinquish control on for the greater good of actually serving your customer better, which may or may not be true, right? So that, that last point is yet another kind of piece of thing that people need to think about is there's no guarantees. Like, like oftentimes I'll have people come to me and say like, hey, can we just do build this propensity model and it tells me exactly when my customer will buy exactly all this stuff, right? And I'm like, okay, well, what if it doesn't happen? Then are you gonna be extremely disappointed? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like you said, it's at least, Today, it's, uh, there's a lot, there's a big aspect of people who feel that, right? That they're relinquishing control and so forth. I think as some of these other parameters of, uh, you know, fairness, privacy, transparency, as those play out and get incorporated into these products, then I think there will be control that the person, the data is about, that they will actually have on that data. And you see some of the regulatory pushes coming down that, that route as well. So... All I'm saying is that's not necessarily the way it has to be, 
In fact, you know, I think as it moves forward, it behooves us all to think about how that should be done so that, you know, people actually do end up having some level of control so that they are able to make an informed decision, right? Whether it's giving the consent for the data, but they, they kind of know going in eyes open, here's what I'm getting, here's what I'm losing. And then you make the decision about it. So I think that's another aspect of AI as this plays out over the next five years or so, you'll see a big push there too. Let's move the conversation a little bit to go to market teams because there's lots of like sales, marketing, customer success, yeah. and biz dev leaders that listen to this podcast, right? And so now a data supporting the go-to-market teams, your thoughts and just learnings and, yeah, and yeah. predictions for that. Well, so yeah, I'll boil it down. I mean, I think, again, that you're in an enterprise going from that context, right? Yep. So you're going to need at least, there are certain pillars of data you really have to make sure that they are fit for purpose, high quality, standardized very neatly, like your client data. If you don't have data, good data about your clients how to contact them, what their preferences are, et cetera. It's not going to be good. Also data about your own offerings and how they are received in the marketplace and how they're playing out in the marketplace. All that stuff becomes critical. Your own workforce, because if you're a services outfit and you're trying to support people, I mean, unless you're able to optimize all that, you can't do it. And finally, you know, if you're a publicly traded company, especially the financial pieces become very critical because if they're not managed well, then, you know, it doesn't, it's going to be an issue. So, so those four internally, internal data, you have to make sure that they're all working well. And it's typically when you start doing some kind of think of it as like a 360 view across all four of those pillars that you'll start getting really good insight. A lot of people kind of have realized that and they, you know, they're doing it. Where I find most people fall a little short when it comes to go to market, having data supported and so forth are on two dimensions. One is not making enough use of external data, which is data that you may not be gathering, right? So for instance, if you think in terms of the white space in the markets that you have, and there are clients you're trying to get who you don't have today, you won't have that data. You're going to have to get that from external sources. So that's an extremely important part of the puzzle. And there's more and more external sources of data, alternative data, all kinds of things that are available. And, you know, we, as CDOs, we have to pay attention to that. We have to bring that into the business, understand how to use it, deploy it, and so forth. So I think that's a key aspect from a uh, go-to-market standpoint with regard to external data that needs to be used to enhance the internal data that you have. So you do become much more competitive with how you go about uh, doing that. Yeah, I feel like we could do a whole other podcast. Maybe we will do it a little bit later in the year around just like external data and how to like think about it because you're kind of taking somebody else's data in, right? And uh, not kind of, but you actually are. And you have to be okay with it. Like people are trying to get through the internal data jump and then the external data thing comes into play. And it just philosophically, people have to be aligned, but there are ways to make that journey easier. But we'll definitely come back to that topic a little bit later in the year. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that we wanted to learn from you is as you are championing data at a very, very large organization, which sets the trends a little bit for the industry as well, right? Like what are some of the things now outside of the journey for AI just starting and predictive analytics just starting, right? Like effectively, what are some of the other things that we should be on the lookout for as data enthusiasts? Yeah. So, you know, some of the things that I mentioned earlier, we talked about AI, but, you know, there's the 
the aspects of uh, cybersecurity, the aspects of uh, external data, the yep. aspects of edge computing, you know, with IoT devices, as that becomes more, as they proliferate more and more, and you know, you'll be able to use them. Really good examples exist in the supply chain, for instance, making use of that kind of data, that kind of information. So I think near term, all those things are key. A little further out, you know, things like quantum computing, which could just completely change the dynamic of how this is done, just be, take everything to a different level is something that needs to be watched as well. And the reason I kind of bring it up now, and I've been educating our CDO community as well about this, is one of those things where it's played out. I've seen it personally play out over the last two decades, and now it's just taking off. And it's getting to the stage now that we'll be quite close to, to hitting some real use cases, some real applications, and we'll just take everything to a different level. And if you are not prepared to keep pace with that, then it'll, uh, you know, it becomes a competitive, uh, competitive disadvantage. So I think uh, those are the aspects that I focus on as I look at outside of the, in addition to AI, of course, like I said. Well, great. Well, this was fantastic. I really enjoyed the conversation with you. I hope the the emerging and the seasoned executives that listen to this podcast took some data away from this and they could actually use use it uh, inside of their own companies. As we wrap up the podcast, right, I would love to learn about a resource that we could use. It could be a book, a blog, a newsletter, a video, or a website that people can take away and learn uh, either more about AI and data or whatever you want to recommend folks to do. Yeah, no, so we actually have... Uh quite significant resources because, you know, we are involved in doing quite a bit of education around data and AI and how to deploy it in enterprises, both for ourselves as far as, as well as for our clients. So we actually have a website where you can find our CDO playbook, the blueprint for enterprise transformation, information about the CDO CTO summits that we run every two months, which are peer-to-peer and purely educational and the data and AI solutions that, you know, we've used internally that transformed IBM. So they're used as showcases. So people have actual examples and reference points to yep. base, that, uh, base that on. And uh, that's just httpibm.biz uh, slash chief hyphen data hyphen officer. Super. And you can also follow my blogs on Journey to AI, which is https, the ibm.com, blogs, journey to AI, author, Indrapal hyphen Bhandari. Maybe we can put this in a social media post. Yeah, we will. We will link to these in we the can. social posts. Yeah. And then my LinkedIn profile, right? I mean, I'm happy to, to help people if they want to reach out to me. I do a lot of that mentoring. Yeah, work. no, we always have people that want to reach out to, to our guests. So I'm, I'm super appreciative that you're open to that. The last question we have is like, do you have like two or three other people who are as enthusiastic about data as you are, or maybe there are in go-to-market that you think we should bring onto the show? Absolutely. There are several people, uh, you know, we, we haven't, let me sound them out. I mean, I, I think, for instance, the folks, you mentioned the CDO award, CDO yep. of the yep. year award. So the people who, you know, like uh, Anthony Scrifano, he wanted right after me. And then we've got others that are actually three, four of them now. And I think those would be tremendous guests. Yeah, no, no, that's that's actually a great idea. We should bring all those people and yeah. learn from the their guy who the guy who runs my adoption unit, Tim Humphrey, I think would be a tremendous yes. uh, guest as well because you know I think a lot of your audience will be interested. 
hundred percent. No, I think that is a slam dunk. We should definitely have Tim on the show to explain like, how does he make it real for people? Yes. Perfect. Well, thank you so much. I really appreciated your time and your willingness to work with other executives around the world and help them and best of luck on your journey. Thank you. Thank you, Asher. Thank you for having me on the show. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of Sunnyside Up. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review us and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you consume podcasts. You can also find us on YouTube and Demand Based TV.